Okay. All right. We are continuing our series called Having a Heart Like God with a Life Like Mine. And today's lesson entitled, How Do I Overcome Sin? This is the part of the title that is The Life Like Mine. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And when we first started our series, we, we contemplated the question of how can I have a heart like God when I'm a sinner? I mean, a heart like God would be a heart that never sinned, that always had the right attitude, that always loved people perfectly, that always made the right decisions. I mean, to, to think about it logically, if I had a heart like God, I should be perfect. But the truth of the matter is, our heart, though it was made in the image of God, is stained with a sin nature. Well, so was David. And since David is the one who was referenced when the Bible says he had a heart like God, then that gives me hope, as we saw in our very first lesson, when we talked about the fact that David was a normal guy, just like us. So what does it mean to have a heart like God when i got a life like mine? I have a sin nature. I do wrong. Well, part of what we have to deal with is how do we keep a heart like God with all the things we've already talked about, the good stuff, when I do sin. When the part of my life that makes it a life like mine happens, what do we do? So today, we're going to look at the life of David, and we're going to see that time in his life when his heart wasn't exactly just like God's. But how did he deal with it? How did he get past that so that later, even after this, he was still called a man after God's own heart. So we're going to look today at how to overcome sin. Second Samuel chapter 11. Be patient with me while we read the story. Let's start with verse number 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. There are two phrases in this first verse here that are very key to the beginning of what happened to David. Number one is the phrase, when kings go off to war. I've had people ask me before, well, what does that mean? Well, very simply it means at a time when kings should be out in war with their armies, David was not. Well, I mean, was there some special time of year when that happened? Or I mean, it says it was in the spring. Is, is that, I mean, was that kind of like a rule or something? No. David was a king. His army was at war. His proper place was with them, not at home. Why did he stay home? I have no idea. When you get to heaven, we can ask God. I don't know. That part of the story is not relevant. doesn't make any difference. The point here is, David was not where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to do. He was in the wrong place because of his own bad decision. The second phrase that tells us was, but David remained in Jerusalem. When he was supposed to be out doing something, he didn't go do it. He remained. He did nothing. By the way, notice this. Somebody might say, well, you know... His whole army suffered because they got miserably defeated because they didn't have David 
and he was so important. The truth was, victory for the Israelites came from God, not David. Notice the verse. By the way, the rest of the army is doing what they're supposed to do. Just because David, as the leader, didn't do what he was supposed to do, it did not mean that the rest of the army had to suffer. The Bible says in verse 1 that Joab, the captain, went out with the army and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged the city. So, whether David was there or not, had nothing to do with victory. God still gave the victory. They didn't suffer. David did. This was a personal decision that he made that hurt him. And by the way, I think one of the things that's happening here is David is starting to realize up until now, he has been a major factor in a lot of these victories. Remember Goliath, where it all started? Maybe God's humbling him a little bit. I don't know. I do know it happened. But because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing, that's where he got in trouble. That's where it all starts. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, the Bible says. So, And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let's keep going, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now we got big problems. Notice what's happening here. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's walking out on his roof. Somebody says, what a coincidence. Wrong. Satan was licking his chops. Satan will provide every opportunity we need to give in to sin. You won't have to worry about that. It's the battle not to give in that we have to fight. Not the opportunities in trying to find them. He'll provide those. Well, that's what happened. David saw her. Then he began to think about it and pursue it. Then he called for her. Then he gave in. We're going to go over in just a minute the, pro- the three-step process of sin in James chapter 1. And no matter what the sin is, it all, all of them follow these three steps. All of them. So if we know the process, then we know how to prevent it. So we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So now we've got a problem. He's caught. She's pregnant. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And David sent him to, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Can you just see this? Oh, Uriah. Uriah is just one of the people in the army. The king has called him of all the hundreds and thousands of soldiers. This one guy. He calls him in. He walks in. So, so, tell me, how's everything going out there? How's the war? How's the soldiers doing? If I was Uriah, I'm sitting here thinking, what's going on here? What did I do? I mean, I've lived here for a long time. I've never had this personal, intimate, chit-chat conversation with the king. Why all of a sudden is this going on? But because Uriah was a man of character and respected David as the king, evidently there was not that. So he keeps going. David says this, 
Uh, verse 7, when Uriah came in, David asked how Joab was, the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah in verse 8, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house, his character. He wasn't going to do wrong. It was not right for him to be there when his men were out fighting and dying. Verse 10, when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Why? Because it's wrong. It's not right. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Even intoxicated, he still did the right thing. What an indictment against David. Do you see how powerful the sin nature can be? Even to the point where you're in your right mind, if the sin nature is controlling your life, it's worse than alcohol. That's why in Ephesians, Paul said, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Literally, he was talking about what controls your life. And by the way, alcohol is not the only thing that can take control of our life. The flesh can take control of our life. Alcohol had a hold of Uriah. He still did what was right because the Spirit of God led him. David hadn't had a drop, but his flesh was controlling his life, and he's the one making all the bad decisions. Then, of course, when we won't read the rest of the story, you know what happens. He sends Uriah back. He can't get it done at home, so he sends him out. He said, I've got to get rid of him. He tells Joab to put him in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat. Leave him there. I need him to get killed. So what happens? You go over to the end of chapter 11. Look with me at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Look at the last phrase. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Do you and I ever do anything that displeases God? Sure we do. We're human beings. We have a sin nature. We battle with it, but, but we still have one. And sometimes it gets the best of us. We're just human. Okay? And we've talked about this a thousand times in this class. We have to learn how to properly confront that and face it and deal with it in reality. We can't ignore it. We can't act like it's not there. We can't become hypocrites and try and make everybody think we never do anything wrong because that's the biggest joke in life. We all battle with this. So, it doesn't matter what the thing was. You notice in the statement, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It was not specifically named because that wasn't the issue. The issue was, whatever it was, it displeased God. That could be in our lives thousands of different things. 
And we all have our own areas where we battle. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go now back to James chapter 1. We're going to look at two things today. Number one, the process of sin. How does this happen in each of our individual lives? Well, it happens basically the same way that it happened to David. So let's look at this real quick. James chapter 1. Look with me at verse number 13. The three-step process of sin. James 1.13. When tempted. That's where sin comes from. It starts with a temptation. We'll talk more about that in a second. But when I'm tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And notice the first three words of the next verse. Don't be deceived. The Bible teaches that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We have the Word of God that teaches us His plan, His purpose, His tactics. The Bible teaches us that. So we don't have to be ignorant of what's going on. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at these three things real quick. Where does sin start? Number one, it begins with a sinful desire. Where does that come from? It comes from my sin nature. Paul said in Romans 7, The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Why? Because I find inside of me a law. There is something inside of me that fights against the Spirit of God and keeps me from doing the things I want in my mind to do. I know what's right. In the book of Galatians, Paul says, the flesh battles against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to each other so that you cannot do the things that you want to do. There is a battle that goes on in our life every day for right and wrong. And that battle takes place between my sin nature and all of its desires and the Spirit of God and the principles of the Word of God that He tries to implement in my life. Hundreds of times every day in your life and mine, that battle goes on right here. And according to the book of Romans in chapter 6, the Bible says the one that we yield to the one that we give in to, that's who becomes our master. So am I being mastered by the Spirit of God or am I being mastered by my flesh? In David's case, who was David being mastered by? Who was calling the shots in David's life in 2 Samuel 11? The Spirit of God or his flesh? His flesh. That's the beginning of the process of sin. Okay. Now notice the second thing. First of all, this desire comes up inside of me. By the way, have I sinned yet? No. Just because I've got the desire and it comes up, I haven't sinned yet. I've just been tempted to. What does the Bible say in the book of Hebrews about Jesus, our high priest? He was tempted in all points just like us, yet without sin. So it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin for it to come up in my life. And that's where so many Christians get defeated. 
You think you're an awful person. You can't live for God. God can't use you and God don't love you because you're constantly thinking all these bad things. Let me let you in on a secret and help you feel better. We all think bad things. Every human being does. Everybody. Okay? That's not a sin. Alright? That's the beginning of the process. That's what Satan doesn't want us to understand. He wants us to think at that point we've already lost. So what you says is there to try? So we just go ahead and go through the whole thing. You haven't lost. We're just starting. Okay? What's the second step? Satanic enticement. I want you to notice this. Look with me at um, verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. We don't have time to, to really go into this, but I hope all of you understand we all have our own evil desires. We all have those parts of our life that are weaknesses individual to us. We're not all the same. We, we all struggle with different things. Some of you may happen to have one or two of the same things I do, but nothing is universal to everybody. It's all based on who we are, where we came from, what we've been exposed to, all of that. Okay? But the temptation process continues whenever we are drawn away of our own evil desire and we are enticed. We are dragged away and enticed. What happened to David? Had David been at war, had David been where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to doing, be doing, instead of being dragged away from where he should have been and what he should have been doing, would this have ever happened? No. So Satan's first step is to drag me away from whatever it is that's going to keep me from giving in. He's got to get me in the right environment. He's got to get me around the right people. He's got to get me in the right situation. That's why the Bible says we're to abstain from all appearance of evil. Don't even get close to it. Do you remember when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife? You know the biggest difference between what Joseph did and what David did? David hung around and investigated. Joseph ran like crazy. He didn't stay around and negotiate. I mean, here's Potiphar's wife, beautiful woman. In her bedroom, grabs Joseph by the coat and says, come sleep with me. Can you see Joseph? Well, now, Mrs. Potiphar, let's discuss this for a moment. I mean, you know, God teaches that we shouldn't do that. And, and well, you know, I just don't know if this will be a good thing. Don't you think Mrs. Potiphar would have had plenty of comebacks? Oh, yeah. What did he do? He was smart enough to realize, I'm not big enough to overcome this. i got to get out of here. He ran. By the way, that is not the only desire that tempts our flesh. There's thousands of different things that can tempt you. The ultimate answer is the same. Run. Don't let Satan put us in the right environment to cultivate sin. He, we are enticed when we are dragged away and then enticed with it. Don't get dragged away. Okay? So first of all, there's sinful desire. Then there's satanic enticement. Somebody says, how do I know that Satan is the one that's doing this? Well, because in verse number 13, the Bible says when I get tempted, I can know one thing for sure. It's not God doing it. Well, if it's not God, who's left? 
The Bible says that we're tempted when we are pulled away and we are enticed. Well, who is directing that enticing process? Well, it's not God. So who is it? Satan. Do you know that Satan has a purpose for your life? Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you so he can sift you like wheat. Peter said he is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. If there's any question in our mind as to what his purpose is, he wants to rip our life apart. And this is how he does it. So where does it come from? It comes from Satan. How many of you have ever done something that when it came full circle and you started suffering the consequences, that you made the statement something similar to this, why did I do that? Why did I do that? You ever ate too much and went home with a bellyache? Why did I do that? Now, you know, I never do that. <laughs> why did I do that? Why did I eat those last three bowls of ribs? Why did I do that? Why did I eat that half gallon of ice cream with chocolate syrup at David Yohan's house last night? I actually said that when I'm on my way home last night. No. But don't we do that? What has happened to us? If we knew with understanding what was going to happen, would we have done it? Probably not. We got dragged away and we got enticed. And then you come to step number three. Simple desires, satanic enticement, number three. This is where sin comes. Submission to it. Up until the time David slept with her, he had not sinned. The process was in motion, but he hadn't sinned. Notice this. Verse number 15. Then after desire has conceived. In other words, I accept it. I like it. I want to do it. It gives birth to sin. That's where the sin starts. Right there. Prior to this, there is no sin. I still can stop it. Right here, sin. Then, when sin is finished, it brings death. Don't be shocked. That's what the Bible says Satan's purpose is. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. He wants to destroy our life. And he is a master deceiver. Yeah, but if I just do it this once... I mean, I've done it before. I hadn't gotten in trouble. Nothing ever happened. It'll be okay. He is a master deceiver. And let me tell you this. He is far more powerful than I am or you are. The only hope I have is what the Bible tells me. Greater is He that's in me than he that is in the world. My only hope of winning against Satan is God. That's it. Apart from God, I lose that war. David lost. David loses, I would lose. Peter lost. If Peter loses, I'm certainly going to lose. I'm not a fraction of the man those men were. I have no choice. I have to walk as close to God as possible if I have any hope of not having my life destroyed. By Satan and sin. So, there's the process. First of all, there's that sinful desire that crops up. Then there's that satanic enticement. And then ultimately there's the submission. Or I give in to it and commit the sin. Now, number two. 
Let's finish with this. This is what's so important. The path to restoration. The path to restoration is described in one word. Confession. It's also the word repentance. Now what does that mean? Alright, let me share with you these five things real quick. These are critical to you and I understanding how to overcome sin. And many of these things are gravely misunderstood among Christians today. Let me show them to you. Number one, turn with me to Psalm 51, David's Confession. Psalm 51. We're going to begin in verse number one. Step number one in the path to restoration in repentance is I've got to understand God's attitude towards me. How many of you, whenever you sin, have had the, the, the idea that God's attitude is He's mad, He's angry, He's going to get you, you are in big trouble because the big man upstairs is on the warpath. He doesn't love you anymore. He is mad at you. He can't believe you did that. Why would God ever even talk to me again? That's how I thought for a long time. Well, let me show you what David teaches us about God's attitude toward me. If you don't understand this, nothing else we're going to say will work. You've got to understand this. Verse number 1, David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression. David would have never asked for God to help him and forgive him if he didn't know these three things about God's attitude. Number one, God's attitude is mercy. That literally means not giving me what I deserve. God doesn't want to give me what I deserve. He loves me. If He wanted to give me what I deserve, I'd have died a long time ago and I'd be burning in hell right now. So would you. If He wanted to give me what I deserve, that's where I'd be. By the way, if God wanted to give me what I deserve, all He had to do was keep Jesus in heaven. Just don't send Him. Then they'll all get what they deserve. But He didn't. He went to great lengths and great heartache so He wouldn't have to give me what I deserve. That's mercy. Now that's God's attitude towards you. Not He's mad and He's out to get you. David said, according to your mercy. Number two, according to His unfailing love. Do you know that God is love? First John. God is love. He is the very essence of love. His love never, ever, ever fails. Romans 8, 38 and 39 teaches nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Do you know why we think sometimes God doesn't love us? Because that's how people treat us. And we think if people do it, God will do it. Thank God He's not us. God loves me no matter what I do. Do you know that God knows everything? Before Bill Crockett was ever born, God knew every stupid, ridiculous, and bonehead thing I would ever do in my life. He already knew it all. Man, if I'd known all that just about me, I think I would have just decided not to create people. Not only did He create me and bless me, but in spite of all that, He sent His only Son to pay the penalty for my sin, and He suffered my hell for me. That's unfailing. Do you think God's going to do all that and then say, well, you know what, I don't love you no more. 
people do that, don't they? How many times have you had happen in your life somebody tell you over and over, I love you, I love you, and now you don't even talk to each other? Oh, that was good love, wasn't it? By the way, I love my wife more than life. I would die for my wife. There are times we don't look at each other and say, I love you. We're human. I mean, we live a life, but you know, there's one thing that we can always count on. No matter how terrible we are, God always loves us. No matter what. His love is unfailing. Number three, He says, according to your great compassion. That word compassion means tenderness. In Genesis chapter 43, the verse I gave you, verse 30. This is the account of when Joseph, remember when Joseph went down into Egypt, he was made to head over everything during the famine time, and his brothers came down to get wheat to take back to their father, and he saw his youngest brother Benjamin. Do you remember what the Bible says happened the first time he saw his younger brother after all these years? Because he loved him so much. The Bible says in this verse, verse 30 of Genesis 43, that when Joseph saw Benjamin, his younger brother, for the first time, he turned away because his bowels, his inner being was broken. And he wept because of his love for his younger brother. That's the word compassion. That's what God does when He sees us going down the wrong road or stumble into sin or get involved in something that could hurt us, he turns and he weeps in tenderness because of how much he loves us. That's God's attitude toward me. If I thought i got to go in here and tell God I'm sorry, he's going to yell at me and he's going to be mad at me. Would I ever go? By the way, that's what happens sometimes to me as a dad. I don't always treat my children the way I ought to. Ask my kids. Does your dad ever get mad? Oh, no, never. I'm not God. I, I don't do it right a lot of times. I mean, Ryan and I actually had this conversation not long ago. He said, Dad, I'm afraid to tell you because you're going to yell at me. You know how that broke my heart? Because he's right. That's it, isn't it, Ryan? That's what happens sometimes. Dad, don't do it right. You know what? God don't do that. God don't yell at you. God is God. He loves me with a perfect love. So when I go to tell Him, Lord, I know I'm wrong. I did something terrible. That's okay. I love you. I'm just glad you're here. I've been weeping for you. I'm glad you came back. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What did the father do when the prodigal came home? Bless God, I can't wait to get a hold of you, boy. We're going out in the woodshed. No, he didn't. He threw his arms around him, and he loved him, and he had a feast. Thank God you're back. I love you. That parable was to illustrate the love of God for us when we stray away and come back. So the first thing you and I have got to understand about confession is God's attitude. He loves us. Number two, there's got to be a desire to be clean. I want you to look at Psalm 51, verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin. There's got to be a desire to want to be clean. I've got to want to do what's right. If I don't, I'm going to keep sinning and hiding it and trying to ignore it. Then number three, 
There's got to be an awareness of my sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. Now this awareness involves three things. Number one, what it is. David said, I know what I did. Well, Lord, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not really sure what I did, but I must have done something. That's not confession. The word confession literally means to say the same thing as God. Well, how can I say the same thing as God if I don't know what I'm supposed to say? By the way, 1 John 1.9 covers all that stuff that we don't know. It says that we confess our sin, what we know. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, what we know. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all the stuff we can't remember. Because he sees my heart. That's what he forgives. But I have to acknowledge my sin. I can't stop doing it if I don't know what it is. Number two, I've got to know who it was against. David said, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I didn't sin against anybody else. I sinned against God. He's the one I offended. Then number three, I got to know where it comes from. David tells us, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You and I have got to understand we are sinners. There is a sin nature that has to be dealt with. We can't forget it or ignore it. The moment we do, it's going to jump up and bite us. So, how do I confess? Understand God's attitude. Have a desire to be clean. Be aware of our sin. Number four, know what cleansing really is. It's not making restitution. It's the cleaning of my heart. Look at verse number six. Surely you desire truth in the inward part. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you've crushed may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Number one, he's interested in the condition of my heart, not what I do outwardly. So if I confess my sin, it's because I want to be clean. If I want to be clean, I want to stop. I don't want to say, hey, God, give me a pass this time. Forgive me. i got to get back to it because we're going to start up again in about 30 minutes. That's not repentance. That's not a desire to be clean. Then he says, the attitude of my heart. I want to be clean. Create in me a clean heart. That's what I want. And then number three, God's response. God, you have to cleanse me. You forget about it, and then you restore that relationship. Look at verse 10. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquity. You know the great thing about God, when He forgives me for my sin, He erases it and He forgets it. How many of you have committed the same sin more than once? Within an hour. Within five minutes. You ever feel guilty about going back to God five minutes later and asking Him to forgive you for the same thing? Do you ever feel so guilty that you figure it ain't going to work so you don't do it? Welcome to Satan's tactics. The first time you ask God to forgive you, He said, I forgive you. He blotted it out. It ain't there no more. You ever use the little tied sticks on the stains on your clothes? You blot it. What happens? It goes away. It ain't there no more. In the mind of God, it's not there anymore. So if I do it again in five minutes and I have to go back and confess the same thing again to God, it's as if the first time I ever did it. He can do that. We can't. Again, the reason we don't think God is like that is because we compare to God to what people do. He's not people. He's God. He doesn't act like us. Then, 
He restores our relationship. I love this verse, verse 10. Creating me a clean, pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and give me a willing spirit to sustain me. You know what? There is no greater place to be in life than to know that God loves me and I'm right with God and I'm walking with God doing what God wants me to do. Having a heart like God with a life like mine, that's how you do it. Now, what is our response? Look at this last thing. Look at verse 13. When God does all that, this is the natural response. Then I'll teach transgressor your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. What happens? When God does this for me, I want to go tell everybody what he did. I was dirty, rotten, stupid, ridiculous. But guess what? God forgave me. God restored me. And I'm living a wonderful life again. God can do the same thing for you. Do you know how many people there are at your age whose lives are falling apart for one reason? They don't think there's hope or an answer. They think they're just doomed to live this way. There is no other way to live. There is no hope. There's nobody that's going to love me and forgive me and remake me and use me again for anything valuable, look how rotten my life is. Yeah, that's what God specializes in. You remember what he said to the Pharisees about the woman who had been taken in adultery, who came back and broke the ointment over Jesus. She was a wicked woman before she met Jesus. He said this, Those who have been forgiven for a whole lot, love a whole lot. It's the natural response. So how do I overcome sin? Well, I've got to realize the process so I can fight it. And then I just confess to the God who loves me more than I could ever love myself. And He will take care of me. Father, thank You for loving us. Thank You that sin does not have to defeat us. You told us in Romans Sin does not have to have dominion over us. And it's because of your mercy, your unfailing love, and your compassion. Father, help us, I pray, to have victory over sin and to share that victory with others. If there's anyone here today whose life has been defeated by sin, help them to recognize the process that's causing it. Give them strength to stop it and grant confession and repentance in their heart that they will come to You and know true forgiveness from a God who loves them and put joy back into their life. Help us this week to make wise decisions. We love You and thank You for loving us. In Jesus' name, Amen.